You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing, where our team of journalists analyze the most important events of the day within the framework of key Real Vision themes. That's macro, liquidity, market structure, and crypto. We cover it all. Hi, I'm Nick Correa for Real Vision. It's Tuesday, April 14th, 2020. We have Real Vision's Ash Bennington and Ed Harrison standing by for their market analysis. But before we go to them, let's take a quick look at the latest news and data on the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. In the U.S., daily net active cases are slowing down. If you look at the five-day moving average, we're seeing that across the country, in California, in Texas as well, and in Michigan. But even though the growth rate has stalled, the virus is still growing in the U.S., well above the replacement rate, as seen in the chart of total active cases, which currently stands at 530,000. 19 states now have more than 5,000 confirmed cases. The death count for the U.S. continues to mount. It will likely breach 25,000 by day's end. In Europe, it's a similar story. We're seeing a plateauing of daily net active cases, but an increase in net active cases. Spain is commanding a greater percentage of European deaths from the virus and may soon eclipse Italy. In Asia, some countries are seeing an increase in daily net cases, and Singapore seems to be reporting a second wave. Same with Indonesia and India. While China yesterday reported the highest number of confirmed cases since March 4th. In other news, the IMF today announced it foresees the greatest economic slowdown since the Great Depression, predicting a global GDP contraction of 3%. While Britain's Office for Budget Responsibility forecasted a massive 13% collapse in GDP for the United Kingdom, the biggest slump since 1709. Now let's go to Ash Bennington and Ed Harrison for their analysis. Thanks, Nick. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. It's Tuesday, April 14th. I'm here in New York with Ed Harrison in D.C. Hello, Ed. Hey, good to talk to you. And by the way, four o'clock, we're doing it at the close. Here by popular demand, after market close. I think the big news today uh, was that the market was up 3% on the back of earnings. Earnings that were actually fairly negative, but uh, the market looked at it as a positive. It was yeah. the two first uh, Q1 earnings that we got, and that was Wells Fargo and uh, JPM, uh, uh, JP Moore. Yeah, it's the uh, it's the whisper numbers game, and they're beating obviously uh, what the worst case expectations were, and uh, we're seeing uh, we're seeing markets rise. You know, it's interesting you point to that call. Um, I thought the most interesting aspect of the call, obviously, uh, what we heard uh, was that they're increasing uh, loan loss reserves and provisioning, uh, which is what our expectations would be. I'm interested uh, in a couple of the things that Jamie Dimon had to say specifically because he's regarded as a market bellwether. Um, and aside from the earnings comments, I thought it was really interesting that he he basically said, look, we're not reopening in May. It's June, July, August. 
that kind of thing. And he avoided giving it a specific date. And the other thing that he said around this that I thought was really interesting was he said, you know, look, it's not going to be a binary proposition. The Surgeon General is not going to tell you everybody go back to work. It's going to be a phased transition. Um, and it's really interesting to think about that because that really is the key question, right? Everyone is trying to suss out, number one, what's the economic damage of this crisis? And number two, the thing that, that's the driver of that economic assessment is how soon can we get back to work? And Jamie Dimon sort of said, hey, you know, this is not going to be like a, a May 1 kind of thing. And it's also not going to be something that happens as a, uh, as a big all-in-one rollout. What are your thoughts about that, Ed? There are a lot of things uh, to take in in that. Uh, one, actually, interestingly enough, I saw something. Jonathan Tepper had something on Medium. He's a guy who's a uh, founder of a variant perception, and he had a post on Medium about testing and uh, isolation and various other things that are important in order to deal with uh, the, the reopen of these economies. And when you, you think about what we talked about, I think, yesterday with, with Iceland, how they really haven't had a, a, a crackdown, but they've tested 10 percent of their population. And they've also tested people who were taken at random, asymptomatic in five or 10 cases that they found there. And that tells you what you need to do is have en enough testing and, you know, take those people and isolate them so that you don't have clusters. Hospitals are interestingly uh, big clusters that uh, where you get sick and things spread with people who you don't know because you're in contact with people you don't know for the first time in, in weeks when normally you're, you're sort of sequestering your, your normal environment, seeing your friends in, in fives or tens. That is, if you're in, in Iceland where you can move about. So I think that that's uh, what we got to think about. It, the question is, is will the United States do that? You know, uh, Donald Trump is actually talking about that date that you're talking about, May, May the 1st, as that he is pining for to open up. And he says that he has total control, meaning mm -hmm. that he can force the states to do what he wants in that in that regard. So I think that's sort of a worst case scenario that uh, the United States opens up early and it's unprepared in terms of its testing, in terms of its isolation protocols. And we have some sort of mushrooming of cases that causes people not to go to work. Uh, uh, it, it really just gums up everything and then we're back to where we were before. So it's better to have it be a little bit later, but not too much later. Right. You know, j just as a parenthetical aside, the big news story today, if you read uh, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, CNN, those kinds of websites, is the uh, the kind of the war of words between uh, Governor Cuomo and uh, and President Trump. And every time I read this story, I think this is a prime example of what is not a real vision story, right? <laughs> It is just about, you know, it's a story because the personalities are larger than life. They're two political titans. They're, you know, there's an escalating war of words. But, you know, look, they're, they're, this is a, obviously it's a serious question whether, uh, you know, the federal government or, or the states are in charge. That's a real material issue. But by the time we're ready to have that actual question play out in terms of actual consequences, you know, all the circumstances on the ground are going to change. This is a classic example of inward gazing, sort of navel gazing news cycle that has very little to do with reality, except for, you know, a great story because you have two interesting characters. And it's just, a, to me, it's a complete nothing burger.
Yeah, I mean, I think the the real story is what's happening in the market. So, I mean, for me, in terms of the disconnect compared to the real economy, I think it's interesting, however, that if you look at, let's say we look at equities, we look at bonds, and then we look at commodities, particularly oil. What you'll see, I look at April the 3rd, the, the area between March 31st and April the 3rd is sort of a, a transition period. We had the Fed step in on, on March the 23rd. Uh, things started to kick in. We got a, a little bit of a reprieve. Um, and then by sort of April the 3rd, we got a change, a phase shift. That's when equities started to go up. That's also when bond yields started to go up at the same time. The 10-year U.S. Treasury note bottomed below 50 percent and has gone up and is now standing around 75 basis points. Interestingly, WTI, at the exact same time, that was when it was at its peak. WTI peaked at about $28 a barrel, uh, and now it's at $20 a barrel. Today was a horrendous day for WTI. There's like a $10 differential between WTI and Brent. And when I talked to Tracy Suchart about this before, she was talking about the difference in terms of, you know, you can actually uh, get to your tankers straight away with Brent. With WTI, you have the whole storage problem. So you have a huge discount right. with WTI. And in fact, crude traded today below $3 a barrel. Uh, you know, that's an incredible number. So that's telling me that, you know, when yields are going up, it's a sign of, bull, uh, of, of people being bullish on the economy. When equities are going up, it's a sign of reflation. So the fact that equities and bonds are going up is a positive sign. The economy indicated that we have in the markets, which is oil, is rolling over despite the fact that we just got a, a an agreement by OPEC plus to cut by 10 million barrels a day. So right there, that encapsulates this dichotomy that we've been talking about for some time now. Yeah, you know, it's interesting um, for, for people who don't follow the oil markets quite so closely, the complexity of the relationship between Brent and WTI, um, you know, now it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's a significant spread, 28W for 20 bucks a barrel, roughly, for WTI and, and roughly 30 for, for Brent. Brent generally regarded to be the international price of oil, uh, WTI, uh, the U.S. price out of Cushing, Oklahoma. Uh, but those spreads are considerable, especially as a percentage of the overall price. Yeah, I mean, that is two-thirds. You don't see that normally. You might see $2, you might see $5, but you right. don't see ten dollars, and certainly at this level, you know where you're trading at twenty, you'd expect that Brent would be trading at twenty-three or twenty-four. So it's telling you there's an oversupply. It's also telling you potentially that plus will cut by ten million barrels a day. That it's going to have any sort of impact. So I mean, if even if you you have the bullish story, if you believe the bullish story, which is that yes, bonds uh, bond yields are, are up slightly, uh, equities are up, and there's going to be a reflation. You know, uh, still, if you have WTI at $20 a barrel, it's telling you something's wrong with that scenario. Right. And exactly to your point, a $10 spread uh, when uh, when prices are at 80 bucks a barrel, a lot different than when it's at 20 um, You know, getting back to models, one of the things that uh, another thing that came out of the JPM call today that I thought was so interesting is uh, this is a direct quote and it's worth reading. So Jamie Dimon said when asked a, about a question about the economy was, this is such a dramatic change of events. There are no models 
that have ever done this before. Now, you and I have been banging the table saying exactly that thing. Uh, and uh, it's interesting to see the, the best known and probably most powerful banker in America uh, reflecting uh, the, the view that we've stated. Maybe he's a Real Vision subscriber. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but it, it is it is a real serious point. Kidding aside, that look, we there just again we say it every day. There simply are no models. Um, with that said, a report out today from uh, from the IMF uh, calling this the uh, the Great Lockdown, and uh, the headline story is that the Great Lockdown is the biggest slowdown since the Great Depression, in the view of IMF economists. That's considerable. If you look at their uh, if you look at their if you look at their projections, something ca called the uh, uh, World Economic uh, Outlook that comes out twice a year came out in April. Um, their forecast for advanced economies for 2020 is uh, this is full year forecast minus six percent, uh, and for 2021 for advanced economies the projection is 4.5 percent positive. So it's a 10 percent swing that they're projecting. That's a, you know, a number that I've never seen happen to the upside, at least. Obviously, in significant uh, recessions, you can see moves to the downside uh, of 10 percent uh, on a year-over-year on a, on a -year basis. But this is a pretty extraordinary projection. And roughly, the numbers are roughly the same for the U.S. It's minus 5.9 for 2020 uh, and plus 4.7 for 2021. What do you think, Ed? Do you believe the model? <laughs> Not at all. I mean, it goes back to our, our conversation about DSG e model. So it's the general equilibrium aspect creating that rebound. There's that, you know, that uh, reversion to mean. Uh, but, you know, even in that model, I might add that you still, you only get back to uh, to the levels that you were before coronavirus at the end of 2021. So even if the economy had continued to grow at the, the rate it was growing before, at the end of 2021, you're still below that level. You've only reached the, the level, but the economy would have grown uh, more, and therefore you would have been at a higher level. So that tells you, even with this 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 snapback, uh, it's not there. I, I'm much more likely to believe the downside uh, in the beginning because I think that right. it's easier to model uh, the near term than it is to model something out. I think that the uncertainty comes in terms of Q3, Q4, and then 2021. And I think that's the same thing that we're going to see in this earnings season from companies. That is, is, is that many companies are not going to give guidance. They're pulling their guidance because they just don't have the visibility into the future. And I think this creates um, a lot of uncertainty that will uh, feed volatility once uh, the, you know the we get out of this hope phase, phase two that, that Raul was talking about on Friday. Right. You know, talking about uh, talking about forward guidance, uh, a note out yesterday from Goldman Sachs's Jan Hatzius, who I believe is the chief economist over there, uh, predicting minus 35 uh, percent growth uh, in the U.S. on a quarter over quarter uh, SAAR basis for Q2 2020. Minus 35. Yeah. Minus 35. And I, I heard the same thing. Interestingly enough, by the way, the same thing was said by the statisticians of the UK. Uh, they said minus 35 if lockdown continues to happen. That's what the number will be. And and the government deficit will be minus 14 percent, which is 4 percent more than you saw in the great financial crisis. 
Well, the obvious uh, implication, going back to our original conversation, is about getting out of lockdown. All of these countries that went late into lockdown are already chafing at the, uh, you know, chomping at the bit to get out of lockdown. But I think that we need to see the likes of Denmark, Germany. We need to see the likes of Iceland, which also is relaxing their lockdown or their semi-lockdown. We need to see what they do, what what happens there, and, and learn from them rather than rush into that that uh, that scenario. Yeah, and those uh, numbers you cite uh, for UK uh, growth is uh, coming directly from the uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer. These are the official projections now. That's right. Now let me uh, let me go on something else that I thought was interesting. I saw a, a note from Mark Orsley, who I've spoken to twice. I had a um, investment ideas a conversation with him, and then I also did an RV live with him maybe last month. Uh, he had a note out today, and he was talking about the normalization of the funding markets. Uh, the reason I wanted to mention that is because one of the funding markets that he mentioned was the commercial real estate market, and he also mentioned MBS. So we had a question. Uh, someone asked us to talk about real estate, and so I wanted to do that in the context of funding. So when we think of it, it using Rao's three-stage model, that is the liquidation phase, the hope phase, and then what I would call the real economy phase, we're in the second phase. The liquidation phase is over, and that's when you saw a, a lot of funding markets freeze up. Now we're seeing normalization. Here's what Orsley says. He says FRA OIS is 36 basis points off the high. A1P1CP, that's, you know, uh, A1 rated uh, commercial paper versus OIS, 80 basis points off the high. If you look at JPMs, that's JP Morgan's five-year CDS, it's 100 basis points tighter than it was at the high. MBS, that's the mortgage-backed security part. That's where we're asking about real estate. The spreads there are now also 60 basis point, uh, 60 basis points tighter. And the CMBX Triple A, uh, that's the commercial-backed uh, mortgage-backed security index, uh, is back to its pre-COVID uh, levels. So all of that, you know, you wrap it all up. It's telling you that P the the funding. The Fed's worked. Uh, they, they've done it in terms of liquidity. Even the liquidity that the Fed has brought into the market, municipal bonds. The municipal bonds underwriter Raymond James is estimating that as many as 200 new uh, negotiated state and local debt offerings were priced over the next few days. And since March the 9th, there have been only about $15 billion in new municipal bonds. That's a drop of in the same period in 2019. So what this is telling you is uh, you know, there's a torrent of liquidity. There are people on the sidelines who are waiting to put their money in. We just passed the 50% retracement level on the S&P. So next stop, 62%. All of this, you know, the, the whole hope phase isn't over yet, uh, from what I can tell from all of that, even despite the fact that JPM was down 69% uh, and Wells Fargo was down 90% in terms of their earnings. Right. Uh, and just to, to point out, you're saying that what you're calling the real economy phase, I believe Raul is calling the uh, insolvency phase. Uh, effectively, they're the same thing. You're just using different terminology, but it's basically the same framework that, you know, there's a there's a period of, of, uh, of crisis uh, at the inception, then there's a period of hope, and then there's a follow-up where reality sets in, where in fact the full magnitude of that crisis actually hits. Let me ask you a question. For people who have followed predominantly U.S. equity markets, give a little bit of context on why these funding markets are so absolutely critical to the functioning of the U.S. and indeed global economy. 
That's because, you know, uh, if you in, in, in the U.S. in particular, I think not just banks, but uh, a lot of markets are done. Uh, a lot of lending is done via markets. That is, is, is that a lot of the the assets are not on the balance sheets of banks. And so all of the funding markets are very important in terms of uh, keeping the liquidity. And because the U.S. dollar is the world's uh, global reserve currency, and there's a huge euro dollar market, people are borrowing in dollars uh, around the world, whether it be Ecuador, the Philippines, or China, uh, th you need dollars. And so whenever these markets freeze up, it's not just freezing up for what's happening for the U.S., but it's freezing up for the euro dollar market as well. Right. While we're doing uh, statistical notes and explaining uh, a bit about the context about numbers, you know, I mentioned that the uh, Goldman's call for 35% uh, retracement or retraction in uh, GDP for this quarter probably looks at odds with the numbers that we cited for uh, for uh, from the. Uh, IMF. So those numbers, I, I, had a, I had a buddy of mine who's been on Wall Street for decades. Uh, he's a CPA, passed a couple of CFA exams and says, I just don't understand how these economic data sets are reported. And so the, the challenge is that these are reported when they report quarterly data, they're reported typically on a quarter over quarter basis that's annualized and seasonally adjusted. So you have two adjustments that are going on to the number. That number, the 35 percent uh, retraction for uh, second quarter of this year represents the annualized retraction if that had occurred over a 12-month period. So we're not going to actually see a 35% uh, retraction in this particular quarter alone. That's as an annualized rate. Yeah, the US is one of the few countries that does that. I think the UK may do that as well, but a lot of other countries don't do this quarter-on-quarter -quarter annualization because it makes it very confusing. You, you know, just yes. to get back to the markets for one second, uh, there are two other things that are interesting. I saw an article in the FT from Robin Wigglesworth, uh, and he was talking about the shadow uh, banks. He called them asset managers, but I'm thinking of them as shadow banks. In right. 2008, 2009, the crisis was a banking crisis, by and large, because banks took credit write-downs as a result of their, uh, their portfolios that had to be marked to market. Now, what we're seeing is, 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 is that, as I said before, you have a, you know, you, things aren't on banks' balance sheets. So a lot of the losses are going to be taken by asset managers. And so Wigglesworth is saying if we're looking for problems where they're going to crop up, we should look in that uh, area. To the degree that we want to look for problems at banks, I think leveraged loans is, is one place to look. Mm. My view has always been that even though the Fed has now decided to wade into junk and they're buying uh, junk traded funds, they're buying fallen angels, people, you know, countries that and companies that were investment grade but are now uh, high yield. They're not doing indiscriminate buying of high-yield bonds. So there are going to be a lot of defaults there. And they're doing nothing in the leveraged loan market. And the leveraged loans are on the balance sheets of banks. So I think that right there, with regard to asset managers and also leveraged loans, those are two places to watch in terms of this third phase that you were talking about, the insolvency phase, because that's where the write-downs are going to hit, and that's where, in the financial sector, you're going to have distress uh, appear as a result of that. 
Yeah, it's those are really interesting points. I sort of two questions for you. The first uh, is you follow these uh, these uh, stories very closely, and you look at the data very closely. Uh, if if these losses occur in the shadow banking sector, number one, what's the capacity of bank holding companies who have access to the discount window to be able to flow through that liquidity? to the places where it's most needed. Uh, and number two, are leveraged loans going to be the uh, CDOs of 2020? Yeah, I, I don't have an answer really to either one of those questions. I think that uh, I don't have a firm uh, I don't have a firm say on either one of them. I think that it's too early to know. You know, when I look back at 2008, 2009, it was clear to me that uh, housing was wrong and that uh, it was going to flow through to MBS. Now, I think it's less clear that there's a market like that that has such strategic importance that will be where you, you see the, the, the big problems going forward. Um, but let me, let me throw an unrelated question back at you, because I'm, I'm looking down at all the different things that uh, I want to talk about before we uh, have to get off. And I think I sent you an article right before this on Andreessen Horowitz yeah. opening up a new fund. It was like a $500 million fund. I thought that was interesting. You're a crypto guy. Can you tell me anything about uh, what you've uh, ascertained about that? Yeah. You know, first of all, I just want to say, I think that the reason that those are interesting questions is because nobody has answers to them. And we're going to keep looking at them <laughs> as we go as we go forward. Yeah, there's their second fund. Um, it's about uh, roughly uh, half a billion dollars. Uh, and they are able to invest directly uh, in coins and tokens. It's interesting. They actually changed the structure of the fund to allow them to be able to do this. So this obviously seems like it's a significant part of their strategy. It's also interesting. Uh, it's the second fund. Of course, it's larger than the last. Uh, and Andreessen Horowitz is is often cited as the uh, sort of the proverbial smartest guys in the room. These are the folks who invested uh, in Twitter, in Facebook. Uh, Mark Andreessen himself, of course, uh, is a significant figure in the creation of the internet. Uh, and so there are a lot of eyes on them. And I think it's also interesting for what it portends uh, for digital assets uh, and uh, and the distributed ledger tech space. I suspect um, that when we look back on this. Um, well, maybe I'm just giving my bias here, but it really seems to me like this may be one of those uh, sort of key pivotal moments where this technology comes of age. They're operating right now, the cryptocurrency markets are operating 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Uh, and that kind of uh, sort of stability that can't be affected or impacted by nation states. Uh, central banks have no authority over the value of those coins. Obviously, there's still a lot of volatility in those markets. But I sort of wonder, uh, is this going to be the moment where that sort of technology breaks into the mainstream and really comes of age? Yeah. And, you know, when you say the smartest guys in the room, I mean, that's why I wanted to ask you the question, because... Uh, when they're starting a second fund in the midst of what is a, a disastrous environment, right. it says a lot. Yeah, who else is starting a fund? Right. So right there, it tells you a lot. Yeah, it is, uh, it is a, sort of the ultimate uh, counter-cyclical play. And um, I think it, uh, it suggests that this is a space that uh, some of the other smart people in the room are definitely thinking about uh, jumping into as well. So I, I have nothing else on my list. I'm looking at, at uh, you know, Wells Fargo, WTI. We hit pretty much all the, the hot button topics that I'm thinking about right now. I think that, you know, if I had to sum up, you know, our conversation today, I, I 
I still feel like we're in the hope phase. Uh, funny markets are, are uh, normalizing. There's lower stress. Uh, you know, we're not quite there with regard to the insolvency phase that Raul talks about. It's going to take a while. Uh, Wells Fargo and JPM did not bring us any closer to that. Quite the opposite. Yeah, look, I mean, the, the headline numbers from the close will tell you that uh, plus 3% uh, on the S&P, nearly 4% on the NASDAQ. Uh, this is a phase that looks, at least to me, more hopeful than what one would expect based on the actual events on the ground. But we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll, we'll just have to see. Ash, very good to talk to you. Always a pleasure, Ed. Thanks for joining us. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.